So there I was tossing and turning under that blanket and reliving all of that trauma. Why did you do this? Did you specifically target me? Do you realize how much harm you've done? Are you sorry? I woke up three days later with my arms and legs shackled to the bed. I was lucky to have lived because that was the most successful failure I ever had. Hey there, and welcome to Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of story and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories, personal stories, grit stories. New episodes are released on Fridays, usually, and we are in the middle of season number three, dedicated to grit talks and the best of. And today on episode number 68, we have three stories from the Mental Health Happyish Hour open mic, which began in the fall of 2020. All our stories today are from early 2021. They are by Lorraine Darnell, who lives in Missouri. Ken Stockton, who lives up in Michigan, and Chuck Fink, who's right here in the great state of North Carolina. Thank you all for crafting these stories and telling these stories and letting me use them here on the podcast. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second story Slam and Deja True, which is a braided storytelling experience. All of our virtual events are on Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. Eastern, and help us out. If you would, please, if you listen on Apple, rate and review this podcast. It helps people find it, and I would love for more people to find it. Thank you so much for that. I hope you enjoy our three stories today by Lorraine, Ken, and Chuck. Let's dive in. One afternoon, many years ago, I found myself tossing and turning under a scratchy blanket in a tiny bed that was never meant to be comfortable. I was staying in the sexual trauma unit in a psychiatric hospital. Several days earlier, my psychologist had me admitted there because I was suicidal, but I did not want to be there. And I couldn't understand why. I couldn't convince my psychologist and the hospital staff that I was worthless and that I did not deserve to live. For as long as I could remember, I had been smothering in shame, which began when I was violated over and over by the two people that I should have been able to trust most in the world. My mother and father began sexually abusing me when I was a very little girl. They were so violent that I thought they were trying to kill me. So there I was, tossing and turning under that blanket and reliving all of that trauma. And I just didn't feel like getting up out of bed. Then a therapist came in, pulled up a chair, 
and sat down beside me. She said, Lorraine, I'm sorry that you're having such a hard time, but you need to get out of that bed. You haven't been going to any workshops or group meetings. And if you're not going to make any effort, then there's no point in you being here. And I'd hate to see you transferred elsewhere. Then she looked at her watch. Music therapy starts in 10 minutes. Now that put the fear of God in me because I didn't want to have to pack up my suitcase and start out all over again at another psychiatric hospital. So I threw off my blanket and I rolled out of bed. I slipped on my footy socks and as I rushed to music therapy, I wondered, what are we going to do? Sing happy songs? When I arrived, every seat was taken, except for a rickety folding chair right in the very front. As I sat down, the music therapist, who was a man, walked in the room. The scared little girl in me held her head down. But then when the music therapist came to the front of the room, I got the nerve to look up at him. He had the kindest eyes and I could feel his compassion fill the room. He said to us, I am so, so sorry for what has happened to you. I know that you're in pain and I know that things get so out of hand sometimes that you try to hurt yourselves. So today, we're going to talk about how you can write about everything, including your anger. And it's going to help you feel better. And now I want to play a song for you, which illustrates just what I'm talking about. Now, I know that some of you have a special song. Maybe you heard it with someone you love, or maybe this song changed you, or maybe even saved you. And you remember when and where you were when you heard that song for the very first time. So there I was in music therapy in the sexual trauma unit when I heard for the very first time the song, Goodbye Earl by the Chicks. For those of you who haven't heard it, this song is about two gals and they kill the one gal's abusive husband with a mess of poisoned black-eyed peas. I just loved it. Natalie Maines just sings it with such spunk and mischief and joy. And it reminded me that I've got some spunk and mischief in me. And that's when I realized that I was glad that I was there at the psychiatric hospital. I was glad I was there because I did want to live.
it hasn't been easy, but I'm here and I'm alive and I love my life. And the chicks have been with me every step of the way. Just today, I played their song, Goodbye Earl. And I felt so much joy that I just had to get up and dance. seen him in 40 years. He looked much older and less daunting. I had a chance to ask him questions that had been on my mind forever. Why did you do this? Did you specifically target me? Do you realize how much harm you've done? Are you sorry? Back in the 1960s in Trenton, New Jersey, Fred was an excellent little league baseball coach at age 23. He also was a very proficient pedophile. Soon after I made the team at age 11, Fred developed a special relationship with me and he began to sexually assault me. And over a three year period, when I was between the ages of 11 and 14, Fred sexually assaulted me. He raped me 400 times. I suffered the typical extreme lifelong ex results of this trauma, PTSD, a lot of other issues. In 2004, I became my own hero. I decided to track Fred down and hold him accountable. Through the miracle of the internet, I found Fred. He was still in the Trenton area. And then I decided to try to, to sue him, file a civil suit and try to file criminal charges. The problem was statute of limitations. However, after a series of conversations between myself and an attorney I had hired here in Ann Arbor, Fred agreed to private mediation. So 40 years later, after having been assaulted hundreds of times by this predator, I sat down in a room with him in front of a retired judge who's a mediator, and I got to ask those questions and many more. It was life-changing. I went from victim to victor. No more self-blame, no more shame, much less pain. I am healing. Looking at the ghost of bipolar future. It's 71. I can now look back to 1970, in the summer of 1970 in Washington, D.C., and it was the end of my sophomore year at the George Washington University. It also became the end of my college career for a number of years because I took a short walk across from my apartment to the George Washington University Medical Center psych ward. I was making a lot of weird decisions, weird choices. I couldn't figure anything out. So my roommate walked me across the street 
where I spent the next three months in the psych ward, misdiagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic, which meant I got the wrong medications and terrible treatment for what I was eventually properly diagnosed as, bipolar. So, Pisanthorazine and Haldol, which I renamed Hell With It All because it made me feel like a zombie. And I must have been good, and I must have behaved well, because only after three months, they let me out. And my trip down, oh, I guess mental health wellness week, didn't last a week. It didn't last long at all, because it, the symptoms came roaring back. And I walked around Foggy Bottom. If you're not familiar with Washington, D.C., Foggy Bottom is where the State Department is. GW is there. We're not far from the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. And I walked till my feet were bleeding. Then I went back to the stoop of my apartment and stripped naked. That bought me a ticket back to the twilight zone of that psychiatric ward. And it was only about oh, maybe two weeks into it. I'm walking around and I see this photo of a doctor on the wall. That was God. So I went into a manic rage when everyone around me didn't see that that photo was God. And then I had a wonderful delusion. If that's God and, I can, and I'm the only one that can see him, I must be Jesus. That's kind of a weird delusion for a nice Jewish boy, if you catch my drift. But six orderlies later, they had me pinned down and the nurse had a vial full of Thorazine and she shoved it in my butt. Excuse me, she stuck the needle in my butt. And I was off to the quiet room. The quiet room is a misnomer. It's a small room with padded walls and a urine stained mat on the floor with only one window. That window was on the door. And that's like a speakeasy that has a sliding cover on it so they could look in to see if you're okay. And eventually I got out, it was another three months. And then I went back to my home in Cincinnati. So I went back to Cincinnati where I remained hospital free for four years. We were not wealthy at all, but my sister wanted to have a really big wedding in 1974. It really got to my father. He was nervous. He was anxious. And when that happened, he would tend to take it out on me. This time it was verbal. He said, Chuck, since you don't have a date for the wedding, I want you to guard the booze so the hotel staff doesn't steal any. I reeled at the implication, but first, the insult to the staff, I thought was a little bit wrong. But the implication that I was not to be a family member, but a security guard really got to me. And in a couple of days, I was back in the psych ward. But this time I missed my sister's wedding. And another three months. If you're catching my drift, three months in, a little time out, three months back in. Well, this time <laughs> I made a stupid mistake because I went to live with my parents. So I went to live with them and there was so much tension. They went on a day trip. They came back and they found me face down in a pool of urine on the bathroom floor with several empty vials of medication next to my nightstand. I woke up three days later with my arms and legs shackled to the bed. I was lucky to have lived because that was the most successful failure I ever had. If it had not been for that failure, I wouldn't be sharing this story with you today. But eventually I got out. And then just two years later, 1976, it was my turn to get married. Okay, it lasted nine months. It was not a long marriage. And I ended up back in the psych ward. But this time, one thing happened that changed my life. I met a patient in the psych ward named Jeff. And when he wasn't trying to escape, we would chat. And he took me aside one day. He said, what's your diagnosis? And I said, they tell me I have paranoid schizophrenic schizophrenia. And he just shook his head. He said, no way. He said, I think you're like me. I think you have bipolar. 
And he said, if you do, and you ever want to check it out, here's my doctor and his phone number. And I took it away. And sure enough, just two years later, 1978, it happened. But this time, this time, I had that phone number of that doctor. I called him. He came to visit at the hospital, checked me out. And he said, your friend Jeff, I think is right. I'm going to try you on lithium to see how that works. And folks, that was the beginning of the turnaround of my life. Yes, I have bipolar and it is not a disorder. It's a condition. It's a condition like a heart condition or kidney condition, which I now have after 37 years of being on lithium, I now have stage three kidney disease. But I manage that and I also manage my bipolar. So it's a condition that I deal with. It is not a disorder. And in 1979, just the next year, something really special happened. I met this wonderful young woman and we fell in love. I told her the same story. She didn't care. She didn't care about my past. She loved me for who I am. And we both defined me by that very nature, who I am, not a label, not a psychiatric label for sure. And then we have two sons. Our older son is an IT executive and our younger son is an actor in LA. You talk about bipolar, an actor in IT, you can't get much more bipolar than that. But I finally got that degree at age 41. I started my own business from which I retired about 12 years ago. And I have to say, I'm hospital free, but what I do now, the most significant thing I can contribute is, I'm a volunteer for NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And my role is I wanna to talk to first responders, cops on the street, firefighters, social workers. So when they take somebody who seems out of control, I want them to remember that they just saw the ghost of bipolar future. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. Special thanks to our three storytellers, Lorraine, Ken, and Chuck. Thanks very much for your stories. As always, check the show notes for upcoming events, including the 99-second story slam and Deja True, a unique braided storytelling experience. We'd love to see you there. They're a lot of fun. Help us out if you listen on Apple. Rate and review this podcast. It helps people find it, and we want people to find it. Thanks so much for that. And that is all for episode number 68. Boom.